Hop legend, Grammy winner, movie star, TV star, Mr. LL Cool J. You know his name stands for Ladies Love Cool James, right? Well, before he was knocking us out, LL went by his real name, James Todd Smith, and was known to his family and his friends as Todd. Growing up in New York, LL overcame the temptations of the city through the love and guidance of his grandparents, who adopted his mother as an infant. LL credits his grandparents and his mom for giving him structure and discipline and encouraging his creativity. Instead of getting lost in the streets, teenage LL got lost in his beats. Inspired by the founders of hip-hop like Grandmaster Flash and the Sugar Hill Gang, LL chased his dream of becoming a rapper. His first single, I Need a Beat, was an instant smash selling over 100,000 copies. LL's megawatt charisma soon turned heads in Hollywood and a career in movies like Any Given Sunday and TV series like NCIS Los Angeles followed. For LL, ambition and drive are forever kept in balance by the love and devotion he has for family. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with LL Cool J. I was always infatuated with motorcycles and mini bikes growing up. So love mini bikes, love motorcycles. So a friend of mine, he had a mini bike and he had a shoelace around the throttle wrapped around the, the, the handlebar of the mini bike because the actual throttle was broken in it. There was some leaks in the thing. So the thing was, you could ride it as much as you want and as fast as you want, but don't push the brakes on because it'll turn off. <laughs> right? So it's like, yo, just don't stop. You know, we, we have fun on the bike, but you can't stop. Okay, smash cut two. I'm, you know, I'm riding down first. I, I go down Dunkirk. I turn down Jordan. I get to Wood Street. Cars coming. Don't stop. Cars coming. Don't stop. Cars coming. Pow! Clang, clang, bushes, everything. But I, I don't get hurt. I'm all right. So <laughs> I just leave his bike there. I just go home. I just go in the house like I'm just disgusted. You know, my friend's a little mad at me. I left his bike, but he went and got his, his mini bike. He's cool. So I go in the house, and my grandfather, he says, uh, were you riding a motorcycle around here? It's like, no, 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 no. You know, no, 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 no. So after that, my grandmother convinced my grandfather to buy me the DJ equipment to keep me off the motorcycles and to keep me off the mini bikes and to keep me out of trouble and out of the street. And so I got the equipment. I would go downstairs and I would DJ. And my grandfather also happened to be a jazz musician. And he played in a few bands when he was coming up. He had a lot of records downstairs already. So I would listen to Miles Davis and Jimmy Smith at the penthouse and like Smothers Brothers records, Mom Always Liked You Best. He had all this really interesting music down there. Then a wave of rap music started coming in into the neighborhood through tapes. There was the Cold Crush 4, there was the Treacherous 3, there was the Crash Crew, Fearless 4, Sugar Hill, like all these different groups. I just started listening to more and more rap music and got fell in love with it. It was the first time that I heard young black men sounding so powerful and sounding so strong and sounding so uh, in control and in charge. And my grandmother nurtured it because she wanted to keep me in the house. 
and out of trouble. So, you know, I'd have the pajamas with the feet in the bottom, and I'd give her the names of records. And she'd say, now, what's the name? Write it down. And I'd, say, I'd write the name. She'd say, okay. I'd be sitting there saying, okay, Grandma, the name of the record is Birthday Party by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I want you to go get it. She'd go in the record store, and I'd be sitting in the car, and she'd bring it out. And then she'd come back, is this the record? i say, yeah. And I'd be staring at the record on my way home, like, oh, can't wait to play this. So uh, they kept me out of trouble. They, they really, they were amazing people. The way they raised my mother and the, the lessons that they taught me, like my grandmother would tell me every day, if a task is once begun, never leave it till it's done. Be thy labor, great or small. Do it well or not at all. That was a mantra that I grew up listening to. My mother would tell me, Todd, you're smart, you're a good-looking boy, you can do anything you put your mind to, believe in yourself. She would tell me that every day. I grew up believing all that. I grew up believing it, and without them, I could have been lost in the street and just been a completely different guy. What that would have been, I don't know, but it didn't have to be this. I played football growing up, and that was like another dream I had. I wanted to be a professional football player, and, um, you know, I was starting to excel at it, and, uh, <laughs> My grandmother's so funny. So when I moved from Long Island to Queens, she's, uh, she says, uh, ah, that football's too violent. And, you know, really, I think what it is is she just didn't want to drive me all the way across town to the Springfield Rifles. That was the football team in Queens. But she, she just didn't like the idea of me being out there on, in Springfield in the park, and it was dangerous. <laughs> so she tells me that's too violent, but then she puts me in karate, okay? All right, so, you know, I guess she wanted me to be able to defend myself. So I got into karate, and I fell in love with martial arts. Bruce Lee, interestingly enough, is the person that made me want to get into acting. Because at that time, Bruce Lee was the only person with any kind of color. It was just primarily all white people on every show, everywhere, in movies especially, and Bruce was different. He would get tanned for those movies and Enter the Dragon, and I kind of could relate to him just because he was different. So Bruce Lee kind of inspired me to want to be in movies and do action and, you know, do the things that I do. Being on set and recording music are two very distinct different things. The difference being on set is that the world doesn't revolve around me, especially on like my TV shows. So, you know, you have maybe 200, 250 people whose lives depend on what's going on. And, you know, you can't just say, you know what, I need an hour and a half. I'm just going to chill for like an hour and a half and I'll be back. Whereas in music, I might say, yo, yeah, I'll be there around 8.30, and I might show up at 10, and it's not a problem. You know what I'm saying? Television is, like, totally different. Like, you got to be there on time. So you learn humility. You learn teamwork. Like one saying, I always say teamwork makes the dream work. You learn discipline. Um, those are things you don't really learn in the music business. You may have them innately. You might naturally be a disciplined worker or naturally be a person who's on top of it, but the music industry doesn't necessarily breed discipline. It's not as structured as television, and you have a little more freedom. But TV is a lot of fun. You know, I get to live this fantasy life on camera and portray these amazing characters and work with cool people. When I did NCIS Los Angeles, when I started it, I thought it'd last a couple of years and I'd be done with it. I didn't have any intention on diving into this show that was going to go into syndication. And now we're in, uh, at the time we're filming this, we're in our eighth season. I had no idea that would happen. It's about, you know, sticking with it and seeing it through. I have to complete it, whatever that means, whether it's when my contract is up, I, I, I no longer do it or whatever. I don't know, but I like to see things through and complete them. So uh, that's why I'm, I'm there, I'm sticking with it. 
One of LL's earliest collaborators was his friend Jay Philpot, also known as DJ Cut Creator. Together, they blazed a trail that made them crucial figures in hip-hop's golden age. But back in the early 80s, LL was just a teenager with a dream and little clue of how to achieve that dream. What he needed was a game-changing mentor, and he found one in Rick Rubin, a scruffy young college kid working out of his NYU dorm room. As one of the founders of Def Jam Recordings, Rick and his partner, Russell Simmons, helped shape the careers of the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, and Public Enemy. But the first artist they signed was James Todd Smith. LL Cool J. I was too young. My grandmother didn't want me to be in the neighborhood out in public. She was very protective. I had thugs for friends, and I was a mama's boy. It was the oddest thing you ever wanted to... I mean, my grandmother was so embarrassing. Like, I'm driving you to school, you know what I'm saying? Like, she would drive me to school to keep me out of trouble. She would do stuff like... It would just be crazy. But I remember one time, you know, so funny. She had eye surgery, so she had, like, a gauze over her eye. She drove me to school. She had an eye patch. Yo, <laughs> yo, it was killing me. Like, I got, like like, destroyed for, like, months because my grandmother dropped me off with an eye patch in school. <laughs> but what happened with Jay Philpot, my man, cut creator, Philpot used to come by, and he wanted me to rap at a block party because he liked my skills, but I had to... He, I told him, yo, you got to ask my grandmother, man, because I was, like, 13, 14. So he was like, all right, so he go and ask my grandmother... And you better not let him get in trouble. You better watch out for him. Yeah, she gives him, reads him the riot act. Okay, okay, okay. But yeah, Phil Pot used to take me to the parties and, you know, that's my man. You know what I'm saying? I love Jay. And it's funny because I remember when I was working, trying to get the record deal, and I finally got in contact with Rick Rubin. I used to tell Jay, Phil Pot, yo, yo, I got this guy, Rick Rubin, he gonna go down and, you know, he wants me to make a record and this and that. And they used to always think I was lying. It was the craziest thing. Phil Pye was like, yo, man, don't have me going down here and you lying. Because they, they used to think I exaggerated. One of the main reasons why I, I ended up a solo rap artist is because the guys that were in my rap group didn't believe me when I told them, yo, we got this opportunity with Rick Rubin. We could go down there and make a record, this and that. They didn't believe me. So I made it by myself. I would have been in a group. I was in a rap group right at the time when I, was, I met Rick. But the people didn't, the guys I was with just didn't believe me. There was a record store on Jamaica Avenue called Record Explosion. And I bought a record by Tila Rock called It's Yours. And on that record, it had Rick Rubin's number to his dorm room. And I still remember it. It was 212-420-8666. Nothing weird, but that was the number. I sent the tape in. I call Rick every day. Rick, you get the tape? Rick, you get the tape? Nope, didn't get it yet. I'd call him back, Rick, you get the tape? Nope, didn't get it yet. Rick, you get the tape? Nope. And I'm, so I'm bugging him, I'm bugging him. And I guess one thing, somehow, Ad Rock of the BC Boys had heard my tape when it came to the dorm. He listened to it. He let Rick hear it. And one day I walked in the house. My grandmother said some, you know, she never heard a name. She couldn't mess up. By the time Rick Rubin called, it was Vic Vulcan. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's not Rick Rubin, it's Vic Vulcan on the phone. You know, some Vic Vulcan call? So I, you know... I said, oh, I'm going crazy. I call him back. Yeah, we got it. We get, he, I call him back. Rick, you got the tape? Yeah, I like it. We're going to the studio. Da, 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 da. When he came down the elevator, I was like, oh, man, I thought you were black. He looked at me and said, cool. All right. <laughs> so we went upstairs. We make this demo called Catch This Break. Rick has the drum machine. We do the demo real quick in his room. We go across town. We play it for Russell Simmons. 
because Russell at the time was managing like Curtis Blow, his brother Run, Run DMC, and a few other people. Play it for Russell. Russell's like, ah, eh, it's the same old thing. Treacherous three, same old, same old. And it didn't work out. And uh, it was a little disappointing, but at the, at the same time, I knew that it just wasn't right. I learned that you don't give up. You can't let, you, you can't let yourself get frustrated like a little kid trying to take a turtleneck off. You know, I always had a big head, so you know, you know, when I was eight years old, my big head, my, my head was like an 11-year-old's head when I was eight years old. So I'm like trying to pull my turtleneck off. You know, you just can't get up. You said, ah. It was just like, I learned you can't get frustrated. You just gotta take your time, get the turtleneck off. Music is my passion. So I kept honing my skill as a rapper and worked on it more and more and more. And then Rick was like, okay. We went in the studio, a real studio, not his dorm. We made a song called I Need a Beat. Played that for Russell and Def Jam, the label was born. So I was the flagship artist on Def Jam proper. And after me, then, you know, all of the, the public enemies and, and, and Beastie Boys joined. It turned out to be the epicenter of what would ultimately usher in the modern era of hip hop and make room for all of the people that everybody's so familiar with now. It just felt like uh, this is what I had prepared my whole life for. You know, I was 16 years old, and since I was a young boy, my grandfather had always said to me, what are you gonna do when you're 16? What are you gonna do when you're 16? If you're acting like this now, what are you gonna do when you're 16? And that kinda, that made that number a big deal in my, in my mind. It made turning 16 very significant to me. It meant something. So when I met Rick at 16, I just was ready to, you know, take full advantage of the moment. You know, nothing was gonna stop me. When LL was a little boy, his parents separated, his father was abusive, and LL and his mother, Andrea, needed to get away. It is a terrifying story, one that climaxed with gunfire. After an event like that, you would think that LL would never speak to his father again. But years later, Andrea made a selfless decision that resulted in father and son reconnecting. She realized LL was in danger of being seduced by the easy money and instant power of the drug world. And she understood that bringing her son's father back into his life could prevent LL from making costly mistakes. My mother and father had a very uh, volatile relationship. It, it got physical. They just couldn't make it work. I was very young at this time, mind you, four or five years old, but I kind of remember just the, the overall energy and the ruckus and the stuff that was going on. I couldn't give you distinct details, uh, but they broke up. After they broke up, things got a little, you know, things got worse. My father, you know, in a fit of rage, lost his temper and, um, you know, shot my mother and shot my grandfather. They both lived and uh, my father actually escaped, you know, prosecution and everything. And then many, many years later, when my mother had the opportunity to press charges, she decided not to. She's a really evolved soul in that regard. I, that's just how amazing she is and how special she is. She allowed my father to come back into my life. And he came back into my life and uh, helped me in a lot of ways. Uh, wasn't all good, but it wasn't all bad. And I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't, I would have never had the chance to really hang out with him and get to know my dad if my mother didn't forgive him and let him back into my life. But she did that. That's why kids needed father so bad, especially in the inner city, because she saw what I was becoming attracted to. She saw my friends, who I was starting to hang with, who I was starting to be around, and she let my father come back into my life. 
he uh, definitely grabbed me and shielded me from a lot of what probably would have taken place had I not, you know, had him there. He ended up having a wonderful life and marrying another woman who he got along with very well and having two great sons. And uh, it just shows you that people make mistakes, but they can change. Forgiveness uh, is a powerful thing. I have a, a lyric in one of my songs, Ill Bomb. I said, I learned you can't, you can't eat if you hold beef with people underneath. You know, I didn't say people, by the way. I said another word, but I'll just say people for the sake of this interview. Um, but it's true, you know, you know, those grudges, you know, that lack of forgiveness, that's like, you know, a wasp stinging you over and over and over again under your coat. You just hold it for no reason. You got to let it go. I think there are a lot of people right now that are sitting in prison who really could make the world a better place. And they're sitting there with life in prison for something stupid that they did when they were maybe 22 or 25 or 27 or 19. And I think we have to take a hard look at that. Um, you know, this whole idea of incarcerating people forever for everything, you know, because people do change. And I think we have to get to the place as a country where we believe that that's, uh, that change is possible. Primarily, I was raised in Queens, but I also spent a lot of time during my formative years in North Babylon, Long Island. So I was kind of shuffled back and forth between Queens and Long Island my entire life. Gunshots ringing out in the neighborhood. The most determined, the most enterprising, the ones that are the most ambitious, the ones that are the most dedicated to succeeding, the majority of them seem to be the ones that get seduced by drugs, selling drugs, hustling, because you want to make it. So what happens is your best and your brightest end up sitting in prison because they're the ones who, at a young age, are ambitious enough to want to take their lives to the next level. When I was a young kid, I was fascinated by drug dealing. I saw the cars, I saw the money, I saw the jewelry. That's what I wanted. It wasn't about, like, when you're young, you don't process whether this is the way to go about getting it or not. It's, that's not even in the equation. It's just one plus one equals two, like we learned in school. So his action plus that action equals that car and that life. A lot of times you hear somebody say, oh, ain't nothing out here for us, ain't nothing out here for us. But you got to take that 20,000-foot view. You got you to gotta rise above what's going on in the hood and kind of try to figure out what else is happening in the world. And that goes for everybody. I'm just talking about the inner city because that's where I'm from. It could be for you, for kids out there in, in the Appalachians. It could be for kids down up in some of them hills of Carolina, you know, whether you're in a trailer park or wherever you're at. It's just something real magical about having the ability to rise above. What I love about Simone, Simone is very outspoken. I'm uh, more of a diplomat, and she's not so diplomatic, you know? So it's, uh, that part is funny. And I, you know, I'm pretty much, I'm a little bit of a loner. Not because I'm antisocial, but because I like to think. I need room to think. And uh, she is like, my house is like Madison Square Garden. You know what I'm saying? She's got it popping. So it's just like, it's, it's a nice balance. I can go in my room alone and shut in and, and kind of get into my zone. And she's like, got downstairs, it sounds like Ice Cube's concert or something. But it keeps me balanced. It keeps me a little more grounded. You know, you know, because I could, you know, I could turn into a bit of a nutty professor if she wasn't there to help me kind of stay grounded and connected to people. You know what I mean? But you absolutely got to be there for your kids. There were times when Simone and I 
weren't together for, you know, a year or two, you know, and had other relationships and things like that. But you got to be there for your children. You got to make sure that you set that example, you know, um, and just be a stand-up guy. It's not about being perfect. It's just about being a stand-up guy that takes care of his family. I never claimed to be perfect. You know, I never put myself on that pedestal. I'm not even setting myself up for that. But at the same time, I've always been stand-up and I've always taken care of my family. After my experiences coming up, I'm, I've been a little uncomfortable with really putting a lot of pressure on my kids. But I am a, a stickler for excellence. And I'm not going to spoil you. You got to prove you're worthy of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. I'm okay, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with helping your kids get in position and stuff like that, but I want my kids to deserve and earn it too. Because this is a real world, they're real people, and I'm a blue collar guy at the end of the day. And I want them to understand that. I just try to lead by example, encourage them, make sure that they know that they can do anything that they put their minds to. Like, the one thing I like to do is I'll corner my kids, like, all while they were growing up, I might catch my daughter, she's, uh, coming out of a room on a way to a soccer game and I just grab a <laughs> You know you can do anything you put your mind to, right? You know you're beautiful, you know you're special, right? Like I, I'm, I've been telling my kids that all their lives. Always been trying to really teach them, you know, to believe in themselves and to not be limited. I don't want you living your life limited. I don't want you to have a, any hangups about being black. I don't want you to let people set the bar for you because I'm your father, especially for my son. Like my son, he'll go and he'll do some work He's working because he's going to be a real person. Because I'm not going to raise spoiled kids and that just don't know what the real world is like who think they don't have to do anything to contribute. And they just, you know, because that's almost like stealing someone's soul. All people have in this life, once you have a certain amount of money, it's about creativity. And if you take that hunger and you take that creative drive and you take that from kids, you rob them of a chance to really live. That's why I let my kids do the things they do. Attention is like oxygen, you know, and sunshine and rain. It gives life to human beings. My grandfather used to sit me down and, you know, he was a, a World War II vet and he would talk to me about the military and we'd watch different documentaries on TV and he'd talk to me about what it was like. We would sit there and we would have contests to see who could eat the quickest because he would tell me that when he was in the army, you know, when as soon as they they got to, to the mess hall and it was time for chow, woof, he wiped it, he got it down as quick as he could because he didn't know when they were gonna pull him out of there and make him go do something. So he used to give me a lot of attention. And my grandparents were really amazing and righteous people, great people for me to have in my life. Um, especially because, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but my mother was adopted. Okay? So growing up my entire childhood and my entire life, my mother nor I knew that. She was actually adopted by these people, okay? Which was like the biggest shock in the world because I have no other connections to the family besides through my mother. So it was like a, as big of a shock for me as it was for my mom. I mean, they really just took my mother and really shaped and molded her into a really spectacular and special person. And they did the same for me. The greatest players lose sometimes. Jordan lost many games, Kobe lost many games, but that does not mean that you're not a pro, it doesn't mean you can't play, it doesn't mean that you're not great. There was a point when I was around 14 years old, for two years I sent out demo tapes, 
at the time when I was trying to become a recording artist, trying to make a record. I really wanted to make music. I really wanted to be a pro. And I was sending tapes to every rap label at the time or any label that handled dance music or rap music or contemporary black music, all of those different labels. And most of them, there was no response. And from a few, there were basically rejection letters. And uh, when I turned around 16, I finally just, I just quit. I remember getting the paper and this last rejection letter had came from, I think it was either Sugar Hill or Enjoy, one of those labels, and I like crumbled it up and threw it in the corner up on a shelf in the attic. And my mother found it. And she was like, Todd, what, what, what's, you, you got the rejection letter? What are you thinking? And I said, oh, I'm just not gonna do it no more. You know, I can't take it. I don't have the right equipment to do it. And she's just like, well, what, what do you need? What, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, I need turntables and a mixer and I, drum machine and I'm explaining and I'm just like, ah, I'm done with it. I was gonna literally just quit. It just so happened around that time she was getting her tax return was due. She took that money and she actually bought me the drum machine that I needed to make a better demo. And the rest is history. So whether it's uh, an album that flops or a show that people didn't like or something I did that people didn't enjoy, you gotta believe you can't allow yourself to get frustrated by failure. I think it was Winston Churchill who said, success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. You know what I mean? And uh, so I've had a lot of failures and that's okay. I just keep going and I, I still know that LL Cool J is a, is a pro player. You know what I'm saying? A top level champion pro player and I just keep moving forward. When you're an only child, there's not a lot to do. I mean, you're throwing a football to yourself, <laughs> you know? You're like, you're throwing a football to yourself. I'm like, I'm dressing up in all black like a ninja. I'm, I'm sneaking around my own house all alone in between furniture. Nobody knows I'm there. It was just, it was hilarious. It was just, it was like an adventure. It was like the craziest thing. So you just come up with stuff. You start thinking of things and you get creative. You do. I remember being a little kid and just telling everybody, all right, relax, everybody. Now let's just think about thinking, you know, <laughs> like, like real ridiculous stuff, you know, coming up. You know, imagine your whole life is a, a, a frames on, on the wall of your mind and you're walking through a gallery. Like that was always a place that was interesting to me. You have the ultimate freedom in your mind. You could think about whatever you want to think about. It's just up to you to think about it. And so the thing that writing did for me was it allowed me to be whoever I wanted to be and say whatever I wanted to say. And there were no rules. There were no, no one could tell me what to do or what not to do. You know, it's interesting. The only conflict that I ever had with writing <laughs> is my grandmother, you know, instilled so much manners in me that sometimes there were things that I wanted to say and I would self-censor. And I think if there was one thing that I would do a little different, there's certain things that I would uncensor. But one of the tough things about being a rap artist is that you really get limited in terms of people giving you the freedom to experiment. Hip hop doesn't give you the freedom to do a Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band record. It's like, look, it has to be young adolescent macho music or else it's of no value. Um, if you're not talking about the angst of being a young black man and, you know, your relationship with the police and you know, everything that that entails, it's not worthy. And, and so what that does is it's, it puts you in a position where you're either pigeonholed into one direction 
or you do things that aren't, that are not accepted and received on the same level. For me, I just never really let those rules stop me from experimenting. So if I want to do something bizarre, or do something weird, or do something that's musically different, or not what you would think a young black man in the street would be into, I still did it. Sometimes I've done cultural albums, like Mama Said Knock You Out, and like the Mr. Smith album, and even my first album. And then I do records that people absolutely hate, like, you know, where I'm just experimenting and trying different things, you know? And it got me in trouble a lot of times and critically panned a lot of times, and it undermined my appeal in certain areas of the hip-hop community. But at the same time, as an artist, it gave me freedom. So I was willing to sacrifice that. Like, honestly, I didn't care. I took the freedom over the acceptance. LL Cool J came from wishful thinking. I just wanted to be the ladies love Cool James, you know what I mean? I had a friend who was Playboy Mikey D, and I just wanted to be the ladies love Cool James. 16 years old, ladies love Cool James. Yeah, I like that idea. It was just a great idea to me. <laughs> it's just a really fantastic idea, you know? The ladies love me, you know? It's just... And that's where it came from. I just, you know, ladies love Cool James. And then I was on the phone with Rick, and Rick was like, oh, ladies love, maybe LL. I'm like, yeah, I'll just be LL. You know, it'll fit on the record label, you know, LL Cool J, because <laughs> ladies love Cool J. But like, fit on, so we just made it LL Cool J, you know. That's simple. Just wishful thinking. Throughout his decades-long career, LL Cool J has had smash hit after smash hit He's one of the rare artists with global success in music, film, and television, with a shelf full of awards to go along with it. But LL knows that his greatest achievement is his family. I've had the pleasure of spending time with his wife, Simone, and their gorgeous four children. And I can tell you, love radiates from that household. But that should come as no surprise, because LL has spent his entire life trying to always Find the light, he says. So, Mr. L.L. Cool J, for being an ambassador of hip-hop's golden age, for being a leading man and a devoted family man, I salute you. You're a master. I remember one time, I was, uh, we played hooky from school. I was about maybe 14, something like that. Sorry, Mom. And um, <laughs> we, were in, we were in my friend's garage. They were smoking marijuana, smoking weed. That day I wasn't. I have smoked before, but I wasn't smoking that particular day. So I stood up in the corner, and these guys were sitting around in chairs. And it was, it was daytime, but the garage was dark, and it was only little cracks of light coming in from different areas. So it was pretty dark in there, but you could still see each other. And the guys were just sitting there smoking the weed. And I just stood over in the corner, and I was watching them smoke, and I watched them transform. Not to cast judgment on the weed, because that is what it is, but just the moment. I was looking at the moment, thinking about playing hooky, thinking about what they were doing. I was standing in the corner, and I remember saying to myself, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this. I'm thinking about my other friend. He's, you know, maybe three, four years older than me. All he does is sit around, smoke weed all day. This guy, it's got to be more to life than this. From there, I just, um, I used to just try to figure out what else was going on. 
what it meant to rise above just what's going on. And I think sometimes there is luck and chance and blessings and things that happen in your life. And it, you know, you have to be able to take advantage of it. When you're on the battlefield of life and uh, you're surrounded on all sides and the enemy is closing in and you see one open barn door with a, with a little bit of light, you gotta be able to go get that, get in that door. You gotta be able to go over there and grab that, you know? You have to be able to take advantage of those opportunities, that little chance, you know? That little moment. I've always believed in the magic of life, you know? Good things can happen. Great things can happen. That's an, a very important quality, I think, for people. You know, you gotta believe that the magic can happen, that the good things can happen. To live your life and believe that there is no magic, there is no power, there is no nothing happening that can help you is has got to be a hopeless and desperate place to be. And I'm just thankful that, you know, I wasn't raised to live in that place. I was raised to believe that I could see that little, that little glimmer of light and go after it and grab it. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.